Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homie. I am your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. Recently, I connected with somebody and when I was speaking with him, the first thing that came to mind is that some of the things that he does with his clients and in his work sounds more than a little bit like some of the stuff that I cover in my book, Groundhog Day is an Event, Not a Business Strategy, which has as its underpinning what I call the spring formula that is the foundation for my work for the Business Creators Institute. Those of you who tune in regularly know that the Business Creators Radio Show is like listening in on a private mastermind. You have your pad of paper and your two pens out. You're capturing those ahas, and you may walk away with a little surprise inspiration, a little coaching, a little lesson you never thought that you were going to find because you didn't even know that there was a question to ask. And what's really great about our conversations is they really do sound like a couple of people sitting back having a mastermind. So you have some of that, oh, and, uh, and back and forth, and each person getting inspired by what the other person just said, some storytelling, some analogies, some metaphors. We make it fun for you, and you're going to love today's topic. It's about scaling any business and adjusting to growth. Yes, adjusting to growth, because it is an adjustment when you move towards success. I know this firsthand. To share with us on this we have Les McEwen. And let me just tell you a little bit about him. I'm going to tell you just a little bit, and then he's going to tell you more. Les was involved in the launch of more than 40 companies before he was 35. And he used that experience that he gained during that time to co-found one of the first business incubators in the world, where he and his then business partner developed over a decade into a multinational consulting agency that advised on the creation and growth of hundreds of organizations worldwide. Not to mention his book, which is called Predictable Success, Getting Your Organization on the Growth Track and Keeping It There became a Wall Street Journal and USA Today bestseller in its first week of launch. Well, I know what I'm going to be reading during my next downtime, but right now, let's get Les McEwen in here. Les, come on in. The weather's fine. Hey, Adam. Great to be here. Hi, everybody. Hey. Uh, what we normally do here is I read off your official bio, which is so impressive. I'm not sure that I'm qualified to be here, and it's my show. But what we like to have our guests do is, in your own words, tell us a bit about your journey, what inspired you, and has brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Sure. Well, it's actually a journey in both senses of the word, both geographical uh, and personal. As your listeners will be beginning to suspect from my accent, uh, although I'm speaking to you from uh, the Chesapeake Bay on the eastern shore of Maryland, I'm not originally from these parts. Uh, right. Clearly, as you can hear, I'm Texan. 
Uh, no, sorry, I'm from <laughs> Ireland. <laughs> I'm from originally from Ireland. Uh, I'm from Belfast, in fact. Uh, now, Belfast is uh, in the north of Ireland. That's the part of Ireland that you come from. If you have any sense, you're going to go to Ireland. You go to Dublin in the south, which is the pretty part. All the beautiful accents, the lovely, you know, the crack in the pubs. Uh, in the north, we have nothing. So I left after being there for 42 years. Um, and though I've been here in the States now 22 years and I'm a naturalized citizen here in the US, uh, my accent has decided not to fully relocate. So uh, it's, it's sort of stuck in the middle there. Uh, I started, Adam, um, uh, back in Ireland. Uh, my very first uh, professional job was to get myself qualified as a CPA. Um, well, the Brit British equivalent, it's called a chartered accountant back there. Um, and I didn't do that because I had any interest in doing anybody's taxes. Um, I just got a great piece of advice from one of my early mentors. I was a weird kid who actually was fascinated by business. Don't ask me where it came from. I have no idea. But the cool concept of business and teams and groups and trying to achieve something with other people just fascinated me. And uh, a wonderful gentleman, Jim Johnson, still around. He must be about 192 years of age by now. He said, Les, if, you're gonna, if, you, if you want to understand business, do one of two things. Either go be an, qualify as an attorney or a CPA. And I knew I wasn't clever enough to be an attorney. So... I went the CPA route. Um, pretty much set up my shingle as soon as I qualified as an independent consultant. Uh, I was I was uh, stupid enough, and some of my early clients were generous enough to let me just try to learn how to help people. And so I wanted I wanted to go beyond the numbers. And it was a massive push for entrepreneurship in the UK at this point. Uh, we were at that stage essentially a branch economy of the US and South Korea of all places. So if Daewoo right. or, or LG or Ford got uh, you know caught a cold, we would lose 15,000 people in a plant at Liverpool or Leeds or somewhere like that. So the, yeah. the long story, the short story was the UK government putting huge amounts of money and grants and incentives behind starting up indigenous businesses. And I got a reputation for helping people put their loan applications together, take them to the bank, get loans, I'd pair people up, I'd, I'd help them find a product if they didn't have one. And it didn't take long at all before, just frankly, people started asking me if I would like to actually join their founder teams. Sometimes I was the interim CEO, sometimes I was just a you know founder team member. And uh, I was able to cherry pick six or eight opportunities a year for nearly 10 years. And that's where that 42 uh, businesses before I was 35 was concerned. But the key thing is this, after about the third or fourth, even a dumb Irishman begins to see patterns. And I began to see some common patterns in what made the difference between succeeding or failing in, in those early years, which are crucial. You'll know this and many of the listeners will know this. There's a failure rate of at least 80%, depends on how you measure it. In the first three years, 80% of all new ventures fail. And I started to get fixated about what these recurring patterns were that would um, optimize the opportunity of success. Back then, there was a thing called a lab book. This was way before iPhones, PDAs, Blackberries, anything. You just got, I got out these blue, long, full scab uh, lab books. They're basically notebooks. And I, I felt maybe 50, 60 of them with what I thought were these recurring patterns. And uh, in the middle of my career, I am, I am as old as Moses, um, in the middle of my career, a, a fellow a serial entrepreneur that we did not have that uh, name back then, uh, a wonderful guy called Will McKee, no longer with us, sadly, uh, approached me and asked, uh, he, he had been a, 
himself approached by the UK government and asked if he would put together what would become an incubation center. We didn't know what to call it. They just wanted to train people to launch businesses. And right. he'd been very successful. I'd been very successful. And we sat down and we made stuff up. We just put together a six-month training program, bought people in two nights a week. There were mostly people employed elsewhere. We'd do like a Shark Tank thing. This is way before Shark Tank at the end. We'd get bankers, funders in. We'd get them stood up, get them started. And then, of course, they would... Uh, we didn't think of this at the time, but they, they would start to hire us to coach them and help them through next stage growth. And so I got to understand yeah. uh, quite a lot about second stage growth. Anyway, that incubation program was an out of the park success. After the first year, we had economic development agencies from all over the world coming to watch us do what we did. We got a number of prestigious awards for the program and a fast forward eight years we have 110, 112 people and 13 offices worldwide. And we're not just helping people launch new businesses. We're helping people uh, discover the patterns of second stage growth. So we were now running programs for companies that have been around for some time, but wanted to get to the next stage of growth. And finally, in this journey, and you did ask, Adam, you did ask. Uh-huh. <laughs> finally, I'm sitting there with what was about three-sevenths, four-sevenths of what would become the predictable success model. And, and re- remember, none of the, I wasn't making any of this up. I'm just, I'm just codifying patterns that I see. And it, it becomes a, probably the most pressing thing of my life to prove that this model holds through any size of scale or growth. And that's when I moved out to the US in uh, 1998. Uh, I moved out to the West Coast, San Francisco Bay Area initially. Because uh, through a remarkable uh, friend and mentor out there, I got the opportunity to work with some very large organizations, Microsoft, Sun Microsystems, American Express, um, FedEx, the U.S. Army, Harvard uh, University. And I spent about eight years just proving out this model. And I I had the whole life cycle from early struggle, starting off right through to organizations that die. And I called that... Uh, uh, life cycle, seven stage life cycle, predictable success, put it into a book, yep. launched 2010. And as you say, um, the rest is history. And that's that's what I spend my life I've done for the last 20 years or so, is I just coach and consult and work with uh, leadership teams, helping them navigate their way through that life cycle. Yeah. And, you know, just to you know unite together, what got me so excited about having you join us here at the Business Creators Radio Show is Three years ago, I published a book called Groundhog Day is an Event, Not a Business Strategy, which I think I mentioned earlier. The title of that book, here's where it comes from. The book itself is a collection of well over 100 stories, anecdotes, metaphors, and actual this is exactly what happened type scenarios of my work with small businesses that either were going from solopreneurship to leverage or from startup to revenue, which is kind of the sweet spot for the Business Creators Institute. And it also has a mixture of businesses that have been around for a while. And it seems like no matter what they do, uh, whether they launch something, whether they catch some media wave that propels them, whatever it is, they may go through periods of growth and success. And then by the time it all everything settles down, they're at the exact same place they were before, sometimes the exact dollar amount of product of profitability or lack thereof. Or it seems like they're having the same conversations about the same problems that never seem to get fixed. And you put those two things together, 
And it's like that movie Groundhog Day, except in hell. Yes. So my business coach said, that's it. Groundhog <coughs> Day is an event, not a marketing strategy. And I said, it's not a marketing book. It's a business book. Okay, business strategy. And there you have it. Uh, and what attracted me to you, Les, is that you have some of those same themes come in your up in your work, or at least similar type themes. And so let's start with a big question that I get. And I know this is something that you address as well. Why does it feel to some entrepreneurs like their business is crashing and burning when they were doing so well for so long? Well, um, can I just take a second on Groundhog Day first, because you're, it's a magnificent concept. Um, and and I, I, I do want to just take a moment and say that what you're sharing clearly is 100% right. And if I can add a little bit of uh, uh, an additional perspective to it. And then That's we'll what we're here to- for come to the specific question that you asked me, which is which happens a little later in the life cycle. What happens in the stage that I call early struggle is this. There's typically a founder who is uh, one of, there, there are four um, leadership styles in any massively successful organization. And the founder is one of them, it's called a visionary. It's a visionary leadership style. And that doesn't mean to say that they smoke weed and go up mountain tots all the time. Maybe they do. <laughs> it basically means they take a 30,000 foot uh, view of stuff. They get excited. Their endorphin rush is at the point of imagining the, what the, what's going to happen because they're great at doing that. It's right in the title, vision. They, 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 they envision stuff. Um, and while they can grind out the details, if they have to, it drives them crazy and they have a massive shiny blue ball syndrome uh, they want to start things they're essentially starters right. now what you need in order to get out of early struggle into, and into the first stage of growth which i give a highly technical name i call it fun because that's what it is to get to the fun stage the visionary needs someone called another a different uh, style i call them the operator and an operator is simply a ruthless finisher what they do is straight line between two points they go through breeze breeze block walls what the way they do stuff is typically not very pretty but they get stuff done and they have pretty much zero interest in this whole visioning thing and and they form a symbiotic uh, pair they they really complement each other and where you have a founding team with a visionary and an operator and sometimes the operator has has uh, a part stake in the business most often they don't usually the visionary is the one that's the founder owner Anyway, whatever way they share the business, a visionary and one or more operators together uh, will get them out of early struggle and into fun. Here's what happens with so many uh, uh, founders that I've uh, worked with over the years. They actually have enough of both to do both. And they and you would think that would be ideal, right? If we've got a founder who has both a visionary, can see the big ideas, and an operator can get it all done wow, they've got exactly what they need to get out of early struggle and into fun. And in fact, they get trapped in what I call the artisan trap. And it goes like this, because they can do both, they do do both. And what that means in the early struggle phase is when you're in early struggle, nobody knows who you are. The only thing you've got is your energy, enthusiasm, and guess what, your vision. In that stage of growth, selling is a visionary act. Later, it's going to become an operator act. Whenever you've established yourself, you've got your sales wow. script, you just go out and sell. But in the uh, early yeah, let, less, less, less. Um, I'm going to let you continue in a second, but I want to interject simply to create the pattern interrupt so that our listeners can capture what you just said about sales. And when you're at that early stage, it's a visionary act, something that they may be able to see happening, but it's not a natural part of what they're 
doing, which is why so many people at certain stages find it a struggle to actually sell, uh, to put it in really, really plain English that we speak both the United States and Ireland and Texas, where you're originally from, is, uh, (laughs) I love that, (laughs) is that uh, you're just not there yet now again i was i was uh, i was not uh, uh, to be impolite but i wanted to no, no, no. I'm actually, our listeners grabbed it and said oh my god that's so important please continue I, and it's a good point but the point i'm actually making is, is slightly different from that what i'm saying go is ahead. that you've got to you in early struggle when you go out to sell you can be brilliant at it but you've got to put your visionary leadership hat on you've got to go out with all your charisma you got to go out with all the big pictures. you got to really push like crazy. And if you're a visionary founder, you can do it. So you go do it and you sell and you get the work. Right. Now, what's got to happen? I got to deliver. That's an operator deal. You put your operator hat on because you've got, you're a visionary operator and you can do it. And you spend three months delivering what you just sold, whether it's a consulting gig or you want to paint a house or whatever it might be. But guess what's happening while you've got your operator hat on delivering? You're not selling. So the money runs out and you got to switch back, put your visionary hat on, go out and sell. And you get caught in this artisan trap. You think uh-huh. of it as a rat trap. You're going around in a circle. Visionary hat on, go out, make sales, got sales, come back, operator hat, deliver it, deliver it all, no money, go out, make sales. And you're stuck in this circle, just go around and around. And as you said, quite in, incisively, you feel like you're working like crazy and going nowhere, first of all. And secondly, you're doing the same thing. It's like Groundhog Day every day. And here's the answer to it. You have to, have to, have to find a way to separate the visionary and operator roles. You as a founder are probably got to operate on visionary, on the visionary side, 100%, and find yourself an operator to operate so you can do the two things together. That's hugely important. And that's how you break the Groundhog Day cycle. You get an operator on your team who you can sling the sales to and say, get that done. I'm out to get some more. Anyway, to come back to the question that you did ask right at the top, and uh, I interrupted you to give that part. Why is it that so many business owners get to a stage, and it's a stage I call whitewater, where you've been through that fun stage, that early growth. And one of the things that happens is, most people only launch businesses once. Uh, that's quite enough for most people. And what they have in a, as a mental image in their head is, yeah, I understand it's going to be tough at the start. I know that. I'm not dumb. People tell me and I see it. So I know there's going to be this ziggy zaggy tough thing, that, which, which I call early struggle. But after that, there's really only one state in most people's mind, which is the after early struggle stage where we're through that and now we just do everything and do more of it and keep doing everything and do more of it. And nobody tells you that there are five more stages ahead. And what happens is you get to fun, which is just that early evangelical first flush of growth, say yes to everything, sell your products and services, you know, just say whatever the customer wants and later work out how to do it. And that's wonderful and it's exciting and it's exhausting, right? But what happens is at some point, because our customers and clients love this, we grow, we add more product lines, we add more people, maybe we add more locations. And at some point, the complexity that's quietly been growing beneath the surface tips over to the point where we cannot just say yes and tap dance our way to a happy customer. Complexity is overwhelming us. We're beginning to screw up. We're beginning to make stupid mistakes. We send something out with a terrible spelling error or we fail to turn up at a very important potential customer meeting. We triple book something. We, we, we sign a lease without reading the darn contract. Anyway, 
whatever it is that happens is unique to each organization. But Whitewater happens to every growing organization. And the founder, if he's still there, he or she is still there, which they typically are, are left thinking, did I just get stupid? Did my people just get stupid? But what's happening is for the first time, we've got to put enterprise-wide, and this is probably the first time we'll ever use this phrase, we've got to put system-wide, enterprise-wide systems and processes in place. Because up until now, we've had systems and processes in place, but only just enough to keep us out of jail, right? We fill in uh-huh. our tax returns. We make sure we, we meet any health and safety um, requirements that we have. We do just what we have to do. At this point, if we're going to master complexity and continue to grow, we've got to actually start to put some systems and processes in place. Now, that might depend what your business is. It might be a bookkeeper. It might be a chemist. It might be somebody in legal. It might be just a warehouse uh, manager who knows how to stack stuff and ship it effectively. Right. Wherever you're screwing up, you need to put those systems and processes in place. The solution is simple. <laughs> the issue, the problem is complexity. The solution is allegedly simple, which is put systems and processes in place. But the biggest challenge is this. It's the four inches between the ears of the founding team because putting in systems and processes and consistently adhering to them goes against the whole DNA of who we were in fun when we just said yes to everything and made it up. And the synapses that happened during the fun stage. Well, that was fun is when you build the myths and legends of the business. Uh-huh. During the fun stages, you do stuff that people start talking about and polish and embellish. Do you remember that time we flew to Chicago? Do you remember we sat up all night, didn't know how the, we were up against those three folks. We were sure they were, going, and you wrote that fantastic PowerPoint deck and we went in and slayed And you know, all the stories that we tell the myths and legends. The difficulty is those become performance expectations that we should be able to do that all the time. Not uh, complexity is smacking us upside the head and saying, now, hold on a second. You've got to actually put some systems and processes in place. And that's essentially where that existential question comes from. What the heck is happening to my business? What's happening is it's maturing and it needs to be able to codify and repeat and scale what it's doing and can't depend on you coming in every day and just hitting and hoping. Well, you know, uh, that just made me think of something. I, yeah, I had a few jobs between uh, my education and going full bore entrepreneurship. Uh, there was only one company I was really with for any appreciable length of time for four and a half years. And when I first got involved with them, they were in what you would call the fun stage. They were still in startup. Uh, their whole future lay ahead of them. And it was a real all hands on deck scenario where if you showed up with a great idea and some spunk and verbae, you could go as far as you wanted. And oh, my goodness. Uh, I I mean, even though I, yeah, I, I hate to say the word even though. Uh, although, so let's use although, because those who understand org charts will see what I mean by this part of the sentence. Although I was classified as an administrative assistant, I didn't really feel like a secretary. I felt like somebody who had the opportunity to innovate from within the two departments I was assigned to and to create scenarios for my supervisors where they could thrive. Uh, And I just found it so interesting that I could make these contributions. And I I mean, here I am, this $25,000 a year job, uh, 
classified as administrative assistant. This was the day job that I took while I was going to MBA school so that I could have a good nine to five that got me a sustainable paycheck without having to, without having to deal with, you know, any of the shit that goes with having a job basically. So I could focus on also being a full-time MBA student. And uh, I was like geeking out on this. Now, then as toward the end of my tenure there, it became what felt like just another corporate entity. You started to get all the rules and regulations. And then next thing you know, and then next thing you know, you start to hear a lot of, oh, well, they're not supposed to say that. They're just uh based on whatever they are in the organizational chart. And uh, the first time that was said to me, uh, I got myself promoted diagonally in record time simply because uh, I knew that I wasn't ready to have my entrepreneurial venture go full time yet. I still needed to work for a year or two, uh, but I wasn't going to sit there and deal with that crap for a year. So in record time, I went from, yeah, I'm still holding on to the AA thing, even though I've already got the MBA because my real effort is growing my business so I can jump into it. But I'm going to be here a year. I'm not putting up with that shit for a year. So I got myself diagonally promoted in two weeks. Uh, it, people looked at it and said, what are you doing in provider relations when your goal is training and development? And uh, for those who I didn't actually work with, I just told them candidly, it's like, I, I need a new place where I can have some fun. So I got myself into a role that still had room for innovation. But by the time I was done with that company, it had gone to the level of maturity that you describe where the excitement and the, and the wild side of it were just no longer there. So I guess my question to you is, what can we do? when we get to that point where it goes beyond the innovative fun startup crazy fun stage and it goes into the maturity stage so that you can still have the fun and the innovation you're just playing at a new level it's a great question and your story um is uh, just a classic one of a fun organization where you know we've all been with them where an org chart is meaningless if you tried to yeah. draw one up people would laugh at you and job right. titles are unimportant and you just do the next indicated thing and then you know you get to the point where that just doesn't last any longer and a number of things start to happen one is that typically at that point some of the operators who the visionary brought in have become big dogs in the organization. And towards the end of fun, when you're, when you're just approaching whitewater, but you haven't hit it yet, you're not starting to screw up. But towards the end of fun is a golden era for big dog operators. And the reason is that they get a huge amount of autonomy and freedom and uh, delegated authority. They build huge sweat equity, typically with the founder. Um, they're very trusted, they've got their own teams, and they're left alone and allowed to do things their own way. And part of the delight for them is absolutely the lack of having to fill in darn memos to, you know, put stuff in a spreadsheet. They can just get up every day, crush it, and that's what they want to do. And the tension that emerges in Whitewater is this, that in order to solve that, you're for the first time bringing in at senior leadership level, which may only be two people, it may be 20 people, depends on the size of the organization. But for the first time, you've got to bring in at senior level, somebody who has got a, a third style, isn't a visionary operator, they're essentially processors. So it's like the CPA that you need for your bookkeeper or somebody in legal or somebody, you're, you know, you need a chemistry, you need even somebody who's going to manage the warehouse. They're going to have a process or mindset. So that's measure twice, cut once, very left brain, very analytical, risk averse. Typically saying no was the first reaction to most things where here's the visionary saying yes to everything. And those three styles clash. They don't 
uh, they don't make a stable um, stool to sit on. And there then uh, begins a war of attrition, essentially between the visionary and the processor. And, and, the, and the war is between the visionary, who don't, don't forget is typically the founder, who's saying, oh, for goodness sake, you know, I'm all for these systems and processes, but come on. You know, I, I mean, I, I, I met a guy last night, uh, you know, we could sell a million bucks worth of stuff. Let's just go do it. Let's just make it happen. We're always wanting to go back to the fun way of thinking. And the processor who's typically come in from a larger organization, because that's where we hire those people from, who thinks these cowboys are lucky they ever made us a dime. But, you know, he or she can fix this by putting their systems and processes in place. Worries that the visionary is a hyperbolic nut job who's going to get us all in, in prison and the operator who just wants to do stuff uh, finds ways to absent him or herself from the debate they don't come into meetings they will not sit there and listen to these pair arguing and so they're like the the children in a, in a bad marriage watching the visionary and operator and processors arguing it out and what happens is either the visionary gets so fed up that the processor gets ejected and we go back to fun or the processors take over and processors breed like crazy. I'm, I'm a half processor myself. So yeah, you put two processors in a, in a room and come back nine months later, there's seven of them. That's what happens. You know, you've seen any IT department that's stayed static for any period of time. They, they no. like So <laughs> the processors can take over and shoot you across, you know, you come out of, um, whitewater by, by putting the right uh, people in place and systems and processes, you go into this peak stage, predictable success, which we'll maybe come back to in a moment or two. But if you let the processors take over and we become over-dependent in systems and processes, we needed the systems and processes, but just enough, we become over-dependent, then we move into this stage, which I call treadmill. And in treadmill, really, the joy is just beginning to go. It's all about compliance and filling in sheets and, you know, checklists are more important than the thing the checklist is there for. You know, it's a poor potential customer that wants to engage with has got to fill in 13 fields in some online form and click two GDPRs before they can even talk to anybody. Um, so this, the, the, the short answer is this, and it took me 15 years to work this out. Um, I worked with visionary operator processor teams all the time until I got a chance to come here to the, to the States and work with very large teams who've been predictable success for a considerable period of time. And every time I worked with those visionary operator uh, processor teams, I could help them fix their problems and stick in predictable success, but it would dissolve and dilute about six months later, and they would be back to arguing and fighting. And what I discovered was this, when I sat down and worked with and audited and talked to and uh, consulted with teams that had been in predictable success for a prolonged period of time, what happened was the team members themselves had developed a fourth learned style. I call it the synergist style. It's the topic of my second Ooh. book. And the synergist style is like being able to go into overdrive and override your need to scratch your visionary operator or processor itch and instead to just do what's best for the business. And that synergist style is the secret sauce, if there is one, of businesses that have got to predictable success and stayed there for a considerable period of time. The senior leadership team have developed somehow, without even knowing it or knowing the terminology, 
a fourth learn style, which is this synergist style. So they don't cease being visionaries, they become visionary synergists. They don't cease being operators, they become operator synergists. They don't cease being processors, they become processor synergists. And the synergist, one simple rule is this. When I'm in a group or team environment, I will put the interests of the enterprise ahead of my own. Simple as that. Wow, that is really, really powerful. And that is a level that I don't think a lot of people think at. I know in my private work with my uh, my VIP clients in the business consulting side, I will intentionally, when necessary, take the opposite shade of whatever they're doing at any given time. If they're all, screw it, let's do it, I go into processor mode. If uh, they are getting too roll-bound, then I take the screw it, let's do it approach. It's the idea of creating the polarity. It's because somewhere within that polarity is the synergy we're looking for to go back to a bit of your terminology. Uh, so, but, but if you have everybody going the same way, then yeah, you get to a place where it's just not fun anymore, or it's all fun with no accountability, however you want to look at that. So as I, as I see it, it, it's just a matter of making sure that all points are represented and making sure that in, in, in all the primary objectives of the organization or the company are paramount to whatever anybody's feeling in the moment that you want to call it long game, whatever it is. Right. That's absolutely right. Um, this all uh, sort of gelled for me, Adam, whenever, uh, sadly, uh, the, the environment in which it all gelled uh, was not a pretty one, but uh, someone who was very close to me, happened to be my sister, was uh, in need of a massive amount of surgery over a fairly long period of time, about six weeks. And she had huge back and spinal trauma from uh, something that had happened back in Ireland. And um, I was unfortunately of an age at that point where I happened to know the surgeons personally. They were We were all of an age and Northern Ireland is not a very big place. So I knew them. And there's nothing worse than seeing somebody you love being uh, operated on by the, the right. Egypts, as we call them, that you grew up with. You know, surgeons are meant to be people you've never knew before. But anyway, um, here was a thing that I noticed that happened. I would go up to the observation uh, hall that they had um, above the ER and let me watch the surgeries from time to time. And these people would come in and I would, I could see them and I could see the visionaries, the operators, the processors, the visionaries coming in, you know, always looking slick, wanting to try the latest thing from the United States or that they discovered in some journal and let's try this. And the processors would come in, loaded down with checklists. We're not starting anything until we've gone through all of this, checklist after checklist. And the operators would be standing there drumming their feet saying, come on, come on, come on, come on, we've got this work to do. And they'd haggle about playlists, music playlists. They all wanted to, anyway, it was fun to watch. Then what would happen is the, the doors on the left side of the operating room would open and the gurney would get wheeled in with my sister. Around. And at that moment, from then till the doors on the opposite side were kicked open and my sister was wheeled out. The only information that they transmitted to each other, the only communications that they had, the only decisions that they came to were in the best interests of the patient in front of them. None of them tried to scratch their own itch. And it was when I saw that, that I realized, and I mean, people say, you know, business is this, that, or the other thing. Business at the end of the day is just business. It's not life or death, mostly. But that at the essence is what the synergist role is. It's saying, I will put the, my interests aside for what's best for the patient, in this case, the enterprise, the business itself. 
Yeah. So with all that together, um, let's uh, kind of round this up. And anything else you need to add is how do you build that leadership team that can help you continue to scale as your business goes through its seasons? Well, the most difficult thing about it, Adam, is that that transition through whitewater, um, it moves the business to a stage where the folks who were actually not just good people, but your superheroes often won't and can't make it to the other end. You go into, uh, uh, so Jim Collins, you know, built to last, good to great, et cetera, fantastic author. Uh, he's got a, a wonderful um, a metaphor he uses about having the right people on the bus. The, the way you succeed in growing your business is have the right people on the bus. And he's 100% right. right. Here's what it misses, though. You take your bus into Whitewater, so you grow your business, and it, and it goes through the gets through past early struggle, survives the 80%, the 80% is one in five that gets through to fun, has whatever number of years it is in fun, and you begin to see the shaking, and you're in Whitewater. If you commit yourself... To, to push through and do what's necessary to get to predictable success. It's like going into a tunnel and what comes out the other end is not the same bus. It's not even a bus anymore. It's like a drone or something. It's a different right. vehicle. And the people who were absolutely, the, not just the right people, but wonderful people on the bus in fun, not all of them, but many of them, in my experience, about a third of those big dog operators, not only will not make it, cannot make it, don't want to make it, and will try to self-harm your journey to predictable success. They don't mean it ill, mostly. They don't, they're not bad people. They believe for a big dog operator, that that last time and fun for them, that was predictable success. That was the peak. Then they want to work there and if you're committed to going to predictable success you can't give them that because it's not going to be that we're going to do things differently and and, and i have to say at least half some maybe as many as two-thirds of the uh, founder owners that i work with fail to make it through to predictable success for the simple reason that they can't bring themselves to let go one or two of the folks, they may be, you know, they might be their stepmom to their kids, they, their, their godmother to their kids, they might be right. godfather to their kids. That you know, they've 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 been through highs and lows. They've sobbed together. They, you know, they built those myths and legends. And to say, Jenny, I, I I get it that this isn't working for you, but I'm I'm pressing ahead. Now, can I help you find somewhere else? I mean, they just break up. I mean, they literally emotionally break up and just decide, I can't do this, I can't do this, which is fine, and decide to go to back to fun, which is a perfectly valid decision. There's nothing wrong to say, I'm just going to be a boutique. You know, okay, we had two coffee shops, three coffee shops. We had a fantastic time. We got to seven, eight, or nine and became hell on the stick. I don't want to do it anymore. And I and I will. I know I will lose you, Madam Big Dog, if we do this. So let's just go back to having three coffee shops. That's a perfectly valid there's no judgment in that at all. But if you want to become Caribou Coffee, if you want to become Starbucks, you're going to have to accept that some of that founding team are going to go. And if, if you do that and you move into predictable success, the next thing, the two more things you've got to do. One is you've got to accept that the processor role is not a second-class citizen. The processors are not there to be, you know, um, 
underlings to the visionaries and operators, unless you can embrace them as equally vitally necessary to your prolonged long-term success, and they you, by the way, and, and break this them and us thing, then you will not stay in predictable success. And the final thing is, in order for that to happen and for it to last, you have got to learn how to move into this synergist role, what it is and what it looks like, what it feels like. I mean, I'll give you a real quick example. Just the simplest example is this. Visionaries invented hyperlinking, right? Because of their boredom. So the one thing that, that you know that a visionary will not talk about in any given meeting is what was ever was on the agenda because they've read it and they're bored with it and they want to they want to talk about something else. A visionary synergist will accept that scratching his or her visionary itch to talk about something new and exciting and not what's on the darn uh, agenda is tearing at the fabric of stable, sustainable growth in this business. And I need to buckle down. And I maybe I have a sandbox where I can go and fly my visionary freak flag. But when we're making non-trivial decisions in our business, I work the agenda, I work the system. And so building a synergist mindset is a crucial part of building your growth team. Yeah, that there is so much in what you just said there. Something that jumped out at me, and I cover this in my book as well. And I'm going to give full credit for this I for this concept to my friend Skip Weissman, founder of your championship company. Uh, great guy. He uh, he shared that same type of thing. If somebody in your organization doesn't seem like they're working out, or you find out that uh, they have their resume out and they're meeting with headhunters and they're looking uh, for another position. One of the best things you can do for them is support that, meaning literally that you will do everything that you reasonably can to support their success, even if their decision is that their continued success means they need to go somewhere else. And the thing you ask of them in return is, while they're still at your company, they give you 100% while they're there. So they don't, so there's none of that short timers disease, no mailing in or anything. Thing in, in or anything like that. So what we're saying is, yes, we understand the environment of business. We understand that you yourself may be in a place now where you need to be somewhere else. And that's perfectly fine. And hey, uh, I'll give you a reference. I'll help you network, uh, whatever you need. Just while you're here, while you're here, you continue to give me 100%. Now, that was actually positioned in my book as an employee retention tool because it may help them see that, wow, maybe the green grass is actually on this side of the fence. There's nothing here I can't work out. I'm going to stick around for a while. And yeah. if they do leave anyway, then they tend to leave on good terms. And who knows where they wind up or you wind up where you may be a benefit to each other in the future. So it actually strengthens the bridge rather than burning it. But yeah, to your point, maybe somebody is just, you know, they, they need to be in the fun all the time. And once your organization has reached a certain level of maturity, they just don't get to have the fun anymore. Maybe it's time for them to go be fun somewhere else. That's why you have that's why you have serial entrepreneurs. That's why you have people who build it and sell it. Because once it gets to the point where you're sustainably growing it, well, it just stuff just bores them. They like to do new stuff. Uh, but I mean, you think of you think of Elon Musk, for example, all the things that he's built and then sold. Uh, I think at some point he's going to sell Tesla because he's going to get bored with it. And he's going to want to do something else. And that's just the way he is. And the alumni um, model that you uh, presented so eloquently there, Adam, you know, where you, 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 you know, graciously understand people wanting to move on and support them in it. 
there are companies like Goldman Sachs have, have built the business on that. They've got alumni who will, you know, still bleed for them. They'll recommend people to go back and work for them. They'll they'll send their nephews and nieces to go work for them. And it's a it's a great strategy. The the one thing that becomes problematic in that fund to whitewater transition is that the operator who wants to stay in fun isn't looking at what's happening to the business that 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 they feel that they bled for over the years as being an uh, something they don't want to do but they intellectually understand and agree with they think boss you're killing us you're turning us into a bureaucracy we're losing our identity we're not who we used to be we're losing our sense of family and there'd be a sense of bitterness in their part because what they they don't feel Oh, I get it that uh, Jenny's just taken the business to a new stage. It's just not a stage I want to be in or I'm not comfortable. They think Jess, Jenny is destroying the business. She's got, she's got systems evangelism and it's going to kill us. Uh, and so, you know, don't forget that because they thought the operators, big dog operators thought that late fun was actually predictable success. They think predictable success is treadmill or even worse, a stage where I'm discussed called the big rut, which is just sheer out and out, you know, it's like go visit the DMV. It's just death. It is death in a stick. And that's where they think the business is going. Right. So you are one of those very interesting guests we get on Business Creators Radio sometimes, where all I have to do is uh, is read off a question and you just take it and run with it. So we have about 10 minutes left here, and I'm not sure if we hit all these yet. So maybe there are four, maybe there are less. But I know, but you mentioned to me when we were chatting in the green room that there are four questions you love to answer. So take it away, Les. <laughs> Well, I, I think the um, area that we've talked about in terms of hitting white water and thinking through what's happening to me here, um, wh what I love most about what I do is that in just about every, every case uh, I talk with, well, typically a founder, not always, but 90% of the time a founder who's going through white water, they'll say one of two things. Uh, they'll say uh, uh, two of two things, actually, because they'll say both of them. The first thing they'll say is, have you got a webcam in my office? Because that's exactly what we've been going through. We had what I thought were our glory days. I thought that we'd go on forever. We built the myths and legends of our business. We still tell those stories. And then we started to all feel stupid. And it's often about a year before they begin to realize that. Um, so how do you know that? And then the second thing is, I'm really relieved to realize that this is a stage that every business goes through because I thought it was just me. And that's part of the, you know, the, it's lonely being a founder. Uh, you know, you, you started this business up, everybody, you know, told you you're brave, what they meant were you're crazy. Uh, there was maybe 10 times during the early struggle stage when you worried they might be right, that you were going to lose it all. Then you proved them all wrong and you got into fun. And maybe a little, maybe a little hubris came along, and I made it. And you know, you and typically at this stage, just before whitewater, is often the stage where the finder is becoming, you know, a pretty big fish in a small pond. I'm getting to be known. People are asking me to come talk at things and being asked to come on podcasts. And now you're sitting thinking, oh my good grief, this is going to die. You don't realize. It's just the third of seven stages. You're far from going to die. In fact, if you do the right things, you'll get to the predictable success stage. And that's where you're going to be able to truly scale the business. 
So I wanted to I want to take just a second because we haven't really talked about it to talk a bit, a bit about the predictable success stage. It's the peak of that life cycle. You think of an upturned arc. Why, with all of this, you know, it's difficult and it's messy and you've got conflict. Why would you bother pushing through what and, and going into predictable success? Um, you go back to our coffee shop example. Why wouldn't you just go back to having three coffee stops? Why would you bother with this? And it's for a simple uh, five letter word, uh, and it's scale. You can't scale in fun. You can grow, but it's always a declining curve. You're, you get to the point where you're always going to be capped by the pre, by the uh, pressures of white water. So you grow and it just gets a little less. The rate of growth gets a little less each year, a little less each year. You do the right stuff in white water. You put your um, system, the right systems and processes in place. Then you get to the point where you put the foot on the accelerator and by golly, the car goes forward. I mean, you you mentioned this as uh, Elon Musk and uh, Tesla saying, I bought a, te a Tesla about 2017. And I know nothing about cars, nothing, nothing at all. I, so, and I know so little about cars that I had never been in a Tesla. The day I went and picked mine up, I bought it online, spec'd it online. Then they told me in the, it's in the dealer's place and I went and picked it up. I didn't even know how to drive it. I had to ask him to show me how the instrumentation worked. And it wasn't for about six months. At that time, I lived in D.C., very crowded streets, and I drive like a, a granny anyway. I was up at where I now live, uh, out in Maryland, and it, this is out in the boondocks. And I was in a long straight road, and I thought, I've been told this can travel. I put my foot down, and I squealed. I scared <laughs> myself. And you can go, I didn't, somebody else told me this afterwards, and I went and saw it, and it's well worth doing it. You can go onto YouTube, and just type search for Tesla passenger cam. And there are these videos over and over again where unsuspecting passengers are being filmed and the driver of the Tesla just literally puts their foot down. I have never experienced anything like it in my life. And after that was all over and I, and I don't do it much anymore, the thing that really, I just sat with this for nearly four days. I sat with it and I sat with it and I sat with it. That's what I help people do. Because when you get to predictable success, that's what you can do. You put your foot in the accelerator and by golly, the car goes forward. So that's why you would do it. Now that's not for everybody. And there's nothing wrong with saying, I, it's, I mean, I'm a, I'm, and I've done what you've said and run with this all with this. I personally, for me, I have personally decided at this stage in my life, I want to stay in fun. I'm not building a McKinsey or a Bain consulting practice. There's me. And right now, my only assistant who has no opposable thumbs is uh, right beside me on the sofa, snoring like crazy. And, and the listeners, if they could concentrate, would be able to hear him. And that's all I have. I don't mm -hmm. have any employees. I've chosen to do that. For me, I can't help other people scale and scale my own business. But I've done it in the past, and I've enjoyed it. It's okay to choose pushing through to predictable success to get that Tesla-like ability to scale but it's also perfectly valid just to decide to go back to fun and have your two to three coffee shops or just your small consulting firm like me. Either choice is right, but for goodness sake, make the choice. Don't do what I see so many people do and just get yourself stuck in white water, not knowing what really is happening. And it's sort of like the old days of whenever you would put a videotape in. You're not old enough to remember this, Adam, but we used oh, to. Oh, I am. Pre-streaming, we used to put video VCRs in the VCR. Yep. Oh, I, I still have my VCR. I'm not that old. Well, then you're not that young, rather. <laughs> You'll remember what it was like sometimes when you pressed pause 
the, the the image didn't come to a complete stop. It sort of did like a little jiff. You know, it's just the, 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 the people on screen would do a little jerky movement until you unpause them. And sometimes that's what happens to people that get into whitewater and they, they just are in this uh, groundhog day, as you said it, and they can't get out of it. And one of the reasons is they're not making an overt choice. Do I want to push through with this and get to predictable success and accept that there may be some um, cost to that? Or do I want to get out of this by going back to where I was, getting rid of some of the things we've started doing and go back to being uh, you know, uh, it's funny you mentioned the VCR thing because, uh, yeah, I do remember that whole thing. You're trying to pause it at exactly a certain point. You can't quite hit it. And it's kind of the same with YouTube videos or things I'm streaming on Amazon Prime where I want to capture this one screenshot because I want to send it to a friend for whatever reason. Or I want to make a meme out of it and I want to catch two characters at a certain point in their dialogue or catch a character <laughs> with a certain expression on their face. And boy, I, I will go through it 20, 30, 40 times until I get that exact capture I want. <laughs> you, you, you're going to make a fortune if you just produce a piece of software that'll do that, Adam. Oh, I, I, I am fully, I'm fully aware of it. I mean, and, and what it sometimes comes down to is I get that ex exact place, but then I have a hell of a time making the play button disappear. <laughs> uh, th these are the definition of first world problems my friend yes well um, every world has its problems so this is this is really really fantastic stuff and uh i think we have about four minutes left here so uh two minutes on one question and i'm going to give you one final opportunity because i know some of our listeners are probably getting real excited here is when you're in the fun stage what do you need to be thinking about thinking ahead so that when your organization goes through its different seasons and its different levels of maturity, that you can anticipate that in advance and prepare for it as much as possible. Because uh, I, what I'm hearing in some of your stories, some of your analogies and metaphors is that folks sometimes get caught. Uh, it goes from fun to the systems and what have you. And people look back and say, well, what the hell happened to that time when we pulled that seminar out of our ass and filled the room when nobody thought we could even get a keynote speaker, that sort of thing. So how do we think ahead to that and plan to that so that we can deal with it more effectively as we get there? Well, it's a brilliant question, Adam, and uh, I'm going to answer it in two ways. I'm going to answer what you shouldn't do and what you should do. What you shouldn't yes. do is try to avoid uh, whitewater by uh, somehow jumping over it by getting your systems and processes in ahead of time. Well, all that does is slow your growth. You put systems and processes in too early. All, all that stuff that you're doing in fun, all that improvising, saying yes, and just making it happen, that, that's right. That is the right way to grow in fun. The absolute wrong way is to bring your systems and processes in too early. So don't try to jump it. It's sort of like you know, I, I have three grown kids and I would have loved to press any sort of a button and have them jump adolescence, but that's not how it works. You've got to go through it. What you can do is you can optimize the time and minimize the time that you're going to be in there. And the key way to do that, uh, the one thing that you should be doing is thinking consistently um, about what it is that only you can do in the business. And the problem is that during fun, if you're not careful, you lead yourself to believe that you're the only one that can only do most everything and that other people, they're all just there as water carriers for you. And what you're going to do is you're going to make white water really, really painful because it's all about you and you're the barrier. 
So start to delegate, start to hand over to other people, pair away what's the core of what you do, how you show up, how you're involved. You know, teach yourself a little bit about not micromanaging. That's really tough, tough for a founder. I get it. I was a founder, 40%. I know what it's like that you want everything to have your touch. You know, you, you, it's, you want to smell a little bit of you. Uh, but just learning to pair that back and really get to the stage where you're beginning to understand what genuinely only you can do. That's going to make Whitewater an awful lot easier to, to navigate through. Oh, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And just as a final observation for my own work, uh, part of what I do with companies as they're moving from startup to revenue or as they're moving from solopreneur to leverage is they'll get excited about the idea of investing in a, uh, in a project management system like Monday or teamwork or something along those lines. So one of my modalities is, okay, so you want processes and you want task lists that govern certain activities of your business. So what I'll do is say, okay, all right, based on my observations of being with your team and seeing how you function and seeing where your brilliance and your passion lie, meaning each of you as individuals, I put together a task list. I've assigned each individual to their piece of it. I've set up the dependencies and the next steps and everything else. So here it is. Go do a few. And I'm going to observe how this all works out because it's one thing to build a process. It's another thing to manage it. And after I see you do a few and I see what works really well and what the potholes are that you seem to keep hitting, then we're going to go back and we're going to do the task list again. And now you're going to have a really good task list because you don't know how all that's going to work until you actually have people hands on. You can guess based on your, your ideas and understandings of organizational development and process development, things like that. But then you have to remember their personalities. And then when different personalities attrition through your team, you may need to go with just again, because now you have new strengths and new personalities that can drive it in possibly innovative directions you couldn't see at the time because the people just weren't there. 100% right. Absolutely yeah. agree with so that. Let's, let's give it to you one more time. I imagine some of our listeners on the edge of their seats, whether they're listening to this on the live stream or whether they're listening to it six months or even six years later. Uh, what do you have to offer? How do they engage with you? And what do they have to look forward to? Well, I, 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 I could do all sorts of a spiel, but uh, I thought the simplest thing that, that I could do, Adam, was I just put a page together for your listeners. So it's at predictablesuccess.com forward slash creators, just the name okay. of your uh, word from your um, uh, uh-huh. interview series. So predictablesuccess.com forward slash creators. And uh, you'll be able to get, you download a, the first chapter of predictable success, which goes through the whole model, uh, takes you the whole way through the seven stages. Uh, and then, you know, it's the usual thing, put an email address in the page that it'll take you to. It's got all of my contact details and I answer every one of them personally, whether you hit me up on LinkedIn, you know, send in the contact form, uh, DM me on Twitter, whatever your contact um, approaches, I answer them all uh, personally. And I'd be happy to answer any questions any of the listeners have. And then you can just browse around the site and there's plenty of good resources and stuff there. But go to predictablesuccess.com forward slash creators, get your free chapter and take it from there. All right. Uh, predictablesuccess.com forward slash creators. I said I was going to buy your book, but I think I'm also going to hook up for a free chapter too and just see how this whole engine works. And I encourage all of our listeners to do the same. So, uh, so Les McEwen, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and believe me in education. Thank you very much, Adam. Thanks everybody. 
We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.